Hi, everyone. You are in the game, a podcast about sports and business and the intersection of those two exciting fields. This is Vladimir Bosanets. Today, like every other day in the last year or so, I'm coming in from Seattle, Washington. Groundhog Day, Groundhog World. <laughs> Groundhog World, that's yes. right. Well, this is Anand Punjabi uh, coming to you from London, England, yet again. It's good to be here, Vlad, our midweek show. What have we got on tap? Well, in today's show, we're going to the Supreme Court to check on the status of the case against the AC, sorry, against the NCAA. We'll provide a little update on where things are so far, some of the items that have come out as a result of this case, and what awaits us in the not-too-distant future. And to help us through this holy mess of an issue, we have invited a friend of the podcast, Mark Edelman. He's a law professor, attorney, and sports business expert. Mark is a tenured professor of law at the Zicklin School of Business, Barrow College, City University of New York, where he writes and teaches on sports law, antitrust law, intellectual property law, and gaming fantasy sports law. He also serves as a faculty athletics representative for Barrow College. In addition to his full-time role as a law professor, Professor Edelman is the founder of Edelman Law, where he provides legal counseling and expert witness services to businesses in the commercial sports, entertainment, and online gaming industries. Some of Professor Edelman's recent clients include a Major League Baseball team and Arena Football League Players Union and several online fantasy sports providers. So I don't know that we could have gotten anybody better to give us an overview of what's happening with the NCA Supreme Court I case. think this is as good as it gets. And uh, as our listeners will hear, he's been actively involved, actively involved, uh, you know, in a, from a professional view as well, not just That's from an right. academic point of view. Uh, so I think the listeners are in for a treat today. And and not only yeah. is he got these incredible credentials, but he's an all-around great guy too. So very fun to Absolutely. listen to. Absolutely. Yeah. So Anand, without further ado, are you ready to play some legal ball and get in the game? Yep, I'm, I'm ready for a good legal fight. Let's do it, Vlad. Let's get in that game. Hey everyone, it's Anand from the In The Game podcast. First of all, on behalf of Vlad and the team, thank you for taking the time to listen each week. We know your time is valuable and we're grateful that you choose to spend some of it with us. We really hope you find it worthwhile. We'll continue to do our best to provide you with compelling stories and disruptive analysis from the world of sports business. Now we'd like to ask you a favor. If you like the show, please share a link with your friends, colleagues, and fellow sports lovers. Tell them that they need to get in the game too. And of course, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate your five-star rating and review. From your podcast app, just tap on the In The Game cover art, scroll down, and tap on Write A Review. Believe it or not, this little gesture really helps. Thank you all so much, and now it's time to get back in the game. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Where do we find you today? I am in a small one-bedroom apartment in New York City. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it sounds like you're 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 at least isolating from uh, from the rest of the world. So that's that's good, I suppose, right? New York's a great place to be, even in these challenging times. Great, great, awesome. Well, Mark, uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Really appreciate um, you taking this uh, opportunity to, you know, give us a little bit of a sense of what's happening with the with the NCAA, you know, lawsuits over here. 
Um, and just as kind of a background, I thought, you know, it, it would be interesting for us to just take a step back and kind of set the stage a little bit with this most recent NCA Supreme Court um, uh, lawsuit that's that's going on now. Um, in a way, this is related to a previous lawsuit for which the NCAA was also accused of sort of pushing some, um, you know, bad practices back in 1984. This was the Board of Regents of the of the University of uh, Oklahoma. Um, this was related to uh, broadcast revenue at the time, right? But it sort of set the stage of kind of where things are today. Is that correct? It's absolutely correct. Uh, Board of Regents versus NCAA uh, was the last antitrust case uh, where the NCAA member schools with defendants uh, that went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, as a matter of posture, though, uh, the Board of Regents case in some ways was different because we were not talking about the players suing the NCAA member schools, uh, but we were talking about two colleges that were members of the NCAA, University of Georgia and University of Oklahoma, suing the NCAA overall. Now, this earlier case arose from a rule that the NCAA member schools voted for that said each school could only play a limited number of games of football on television. Yep. And the purpose of this rule was to spread who was on TV. Now, the University of Georgia, if you knew anything about them at the time, this was Herschel Walker in his heyday. And the University of Oklahoma, some would compare to where the University of Alabama is today as just dominant in football. Yeah, And they believed that there was consumer demand around the country to watch teams like them on television on a regular basis. So in conjunction with several other very big football schools, uh, these schools contacted a major television network uh, and had proposal for a deal to put many of their games on television, at which the NCAA said, if you do this, you're banned from the NCAA by violating our rules. So in essence, what the University of Oklahoma and the University of Georgia did was recognizing that the NCAA is a private association of member schools, brought an antitrust lawsuit under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, arguing that each of the individual member schools that are a party to the NCAA, when they got together and reached the agreement that limited the number of games each other school could play on television, and threatened to boycott from the NCAA these schools if they didn't follow the rules, had amounted to an illegal restraint of trade. Yeah, yeah. And at the Supreme Court level, applying what was known as the rule of reason, or in this case, arguably a quick look rule of reason, the U.S. Supreme Court decided in favor of Alabama and Georgia, which in essence struck down the NCAA's limits on number of games you could have on TV which did two things of real importance, one legal and one economic. The real legal importance was it told us definitively that certain conduct of the NCAA member schools, when done concertedly, would be seen as a violation of antitrust law. And consequently, the NCAA, much like any other trade association, is subject to scrutiny under the Sherman Act. Yep, yep. But at the same time, because it lifted this restraint on the number of games of television, it led to big schools, led by Notre Dame initially, yep. to begin signing television contracts 
to have more and more of their games on television. So not only legally did it make clear that the, tw- that the NCAA member schools were subject to antitrust violations for their concerted restraints, but the result also was it further differentiated the haves and have-nots, because you had the powerhouse schools who are now playing a lot of games on television and bringing in and keeping these revenues. That's right. Yeah. And we'll come back to this to this quick look uh, thing because I think it's relevant to kind of where we are today. And the NCAA is trying to use it to its advantage, although probably not effectively. But um, so so that resulted, as as you said, Mark, in this kind of, you know, opening of the economic floodgates, which has led to, you know, the NCAA and, the you know, football schools and all these programs, I mean, just raking in hundreds of millions of dollars a year, essentially, all at the expense of essentially, you know, labor that's uh, not not getting paid for its uh, for for its effort, or is paid partially for 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 its effort. So we are now at this point um, where there is a, there is a new lawsuit in the Supreme Court against the the the, the NCAA. But we should be clear, this is not the sort of the, the full name, image, and likeness kind of thing. This is just a building block towards that. Can can you give us just just a quick sort of summary of of how this um, latest uh, you know lawsuit fits into with uh, with uh, with with the bigger NIL fight? Over the past ten years, we've seen a wide range of different efforts by college athletes. Uh, and primarily, but not exclusively, football and men's basketball players, but college athletes overall, to begin to change the broader structure of the NCAA rules. Uh, where the NCAA, composed of 1,200 member colleges, continues to vote in favor of rules that maintain all of the revenues in college sports in the hands of their colleges, athletic directors, presidents, and administrators, right. and prevent the athletes from sharing in any of the revenues. And the athletes are prevented from sharing in the revenues in a few different ways. Uh, according to the NCAA's rules, and remember, the NCAA is just a trade association. Uh, they have no authority as a matter of law. Uh, it's no different from, say, the National Rifle Association or the National Association of Dentists. Yeah. The trade association has a few different types of rules. One type of rules prevents any individual member college from competing to recruit student athletes or college athletes by paying them actual money. Another rule that this association maintains prevents individual member schools from competing for college athletes by giving them things in kind in value that are above the full cost of their attendance in college. Yep. And this is important. Yep. And then a third type of restraint prevents the individual athletes themselves from signing third party endorsement deals related to the use of their name, image and likeness uh, for a host of reasons, including the fact that it keeps control of these deals exclusively with the school's coaches and athletic directors and prevents compensation to the athletes. And these three broad buckets of restraint have gotten a lot of attention over the past 10 years. Yeah. And there have been different lawsuits and different antitrust cases and different attempts at both the federal and state level uh, to force reform on each of these three areas. The Alston case does not touch on name, image, and likeness. Yep. When originally brought... It clearly related to 
limits on in-kind benefits that are tethered to education, and might have also related to benefits of just free market, uh, free market from the individual colleges to compensate the athletes for services provided. However, the decision on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, limited its ruling to enjoining, which means disallowing, the NCAA member colleges from enforcing a particular type of restraint, and that being a restraint on colleges competing to recruit college athletes by offering them benefits above a certain threshold that would tether to education. So the Ninth Circuit said you can't do that. That if, if a college, for example, if the University of Michigan wants to go out and recruit the best college athletes and do so by promising that every college athlete that comes to their school or anyone that they want to recruit will have a very nice computer that they could use or have uh, in their dorm room for purposes of studies, or will be guaranteed not only an undergraduate education, but a graduate education as well. Or if they would want to recruit by, for example, guaranteeing that the student could do study abroad for a semester and it would be covered by the university, those all likely are things tethered to education. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said that when all of the NCAA member schools, which combined to have a monopsony power over labor, yeah. uh, which is a labor monopoly in that market, when all of them get together and maintain a rule that say the colleges cannot compete with one another in terms of offering these educational-related benefits to their college athletes, uh, that the colleges themselves have restrained trade in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Act. And consequently, these particular rules that are tethered to education need to be lifted. Yep. So that is the issue that's now before the Supreme Court, albeit it's possible the Supreme Court may look more broadly than that very narrow issue. Interesting. Interesting. So this uh, obviously kicked off, uh, I believe, initially in the state of California. Some other states kind of followed suit, right? Um, you were involved in uh, some of the early kind of lawsuits with this as well, right? I was involved uh, with something entirely different in California. Uh, an extent that's similar in that also related to college athletes being able to share some of the revenues or share some of the benefits derived um, from the money coming from college sports. Um, but what I was directly involved in was not a lawsuit itself, um, but with a bill that was proposed in the state of California. Uh, that California state legislator, Nancy Skinner, um, who is a Democrat from Berkeley, California, had proposed a bill at the time it was the first of its kind that would have prevented any California college, public or private, from taking steps to prevent the athletes at the school from monetizing their name, image, and likeness for the purposes of third-party deals. Uh, so the California thing that I was a part of, and many other states have since followed suit with California in proposing these bills, uh, they do not relate to direct payments from colleges to athletes okay. or direct benefits from colleges to the athletes. They relate to third party. Uh, but they're broader in some way because it would allow these athletes uh, to compete for endorsement deals. Yep. Uh, and my particular role was the, and this is where the antitrust component comes in again. The NCAA's response was they threatened California. 
they told the state legislators of California, if you pass this bill, if you pass this bill to prevent colleges in the state from preventing athletes from signing endorsement deals, we'll ban you from the NCAA tournament games. And that'll hurt you in terms of revenue. We will boycott you. And my personal role was explaining to the state legislators why if the NCAA really followed through on that threat, in very high reasonable likelihood, much as the NCAA was found in violation of antitrust law by the Ninth Circuit in the yeah. Alston case, yeah. which is now before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, a similar restraint and attempt to boycott member colleges uh, very likely would be a violation of antitrust law as well. And what's interesting about that is that uh, that was kind of their approach you know, 40 years ago as well, <laughs> right? So yes. it, it, it didn't necessarily lead to uh, a positive outcome at that time either. So, um, well, let's, so, uh, so Mark, thank you for that, for that wonderful, um, you know, background. Let's now fast forward to, you know, March 30th or 31st when the, when the opening arguments of the Alton case uh, versus, uh, versus the NCAA were, were, were heard at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you know, there, there's been some, some, news that came out of it essentially around, you know, what are some of the questions that the justices were, you know, posing and that kind of stuff. What has been your your kind of, um, you know, sense of that, you know, initial discussion? It's hard for me to look at the discussion uh, separate from the pleadings. Uh, the mainstream media looks very much at the 90-minute oral arguments, because oral arguments are fun and interesting to listen to. Uh, for the most part, judges often make decisions on cases uh, by the briefs, and the briefs were filed a few weeks earlier. Uh, oftentimes, but not always, judges walk into oral arguments already knowing exactly how they're going to rule. Uh, and good judges ask the hard questions to both sides, um, both to help them fine-tune and shape their ruling, and also to make sure that it doesn't change the presumption when they came in. Now, my view, based on everything uh, that I've read, as well as what I heard at oral arguments, uh, is that the players should win their case. They should win it easily. Uh, I would not be the least bit surprised if the players win 9-0. Uh, I think there is probably some disagreement between the justices about exactly how to rule on the case, uh, whether to enjoin the NCAA's rules altogether, but then say that if a few colleges want to get together and do this, where they don't have monopsony power, like an individual conference, that would be okay, uh, which is something that I wrote about in a law review a few years ago. Uh, or if certain judges just want to uphold these restraints exactly as they're written. Uh, it seemed a few judges were pushing back on Jeffrey Kessler, who was the plaintiff's litigator, uh, as to why he was not pushing for a broader ruling. Uh, and I think Jeffrey was being really restrained and saying, I don't want to go further than what the court gave because he didn't want to open up a whole Pandora's box in terms of policy. But at the end of the day, I don't think, and you can be surprised, and sometimes, you know, strong personal views or ideology could overtake logical reasoning or consistent reasoning. Uh, but my gut is the disagreement at the Supreme Court level, uh, if there is one, uh, is not about who to rule for in this case. Uh, I think the gravamen of this case goes 9-0 is something very close to 9-0 in favor of the players. Uh, I think it's a lot more of the minutiae issues that they're trying to figure out at this point. Mark, as I understand this, um, you gave us three 
uh, broad areas of restrictions that um, the NCA currently has in has in place. One was uh, no cash payments uh, when it comes to recruiting effectively. Um, then we talked about uh, the non-cash benefits as they relate to education. And as I understand it, that is what the current argument is largely about. And please correct me if I'm wrong. And then the third one, which is yet to come, is uh, you know no compensation from third parties for uh, name, image, and likeness. Uh, can you give our listeners um, just, if 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 you can, a, a little bit of an overview as to which is the largest argument economically of the three, uh, and and which do you think is the most contentious? It seems to me this particular one, as it relates to the non-cash educational benefits, perhaps is the least contentious of the three broad sets of restrictions. Is that is that fair to say? It should be. And if you look at the pleadings in Alston from the early stage in the district court level, uh, it seemed that the earliest stages of the case, uh, the plaintiffs in Alston were trying to enjoin not only the rules of things in kind tethered to education, but also uh, broader restraints on payment from players to colleges. I'm sorry, from colleges to players, which in essence uh, was rejected at the district court level and the players have not challenged. Um, but this is the easy one. To me, this is one that from a matter of public policy actually kind of makes the NCAA look silly in a way that they're fighting. Uh, that if the thrust of the NCAA's argument has always been we're supposed to be education first, uh, these are yes. just simply educational benefits. Right. Um, and where I think there's a disconnect, and you know, the NCAA can be challenging this for so many different reasons, uh, including the fact that they don't want bad case law put on the record for them that will lead to further challenges, which already seems inevitable because they're engaging in a lot of different, arguably anti-competitive restraints. Right. Uh, but in terms of the actual economics, uh, this is not a bad one for the member schools. Uh, first, we're not talking about a law, large amount of money. Uh, in fact, at the trial court level, Judge Wilkins seemed to value these things as somewhere just upwards of $5,000 um, per athlete. Uh, second, and I think this gets lost in people's understanding all the time, uh, even presuming that the players prevail, that doesn't mean that every college has to provide every athlete these educational benefits. All it means is that the NCAA would not be allowed to prevent any college from offering any athlete these benefits. Now, to make the point a little bit further, uh, let me talk about Harvard just for a moment. Uh, I applied to Harvard Law School. I did not get into Harvard Law School. So I always think about this as looking at the one education panacea. Yeah. I've spoken there many times. They like me now. Uh, I didn't get in back in 2003. Uh, Harvard has a great, and I'm saying, I'm choosing this too because I have no relationship with the school. Harvard has a great academic reputation. I would have loved to do my schooling there. There is a class of student who's also an athlete that probably really wants to be at Harvard. Because if they're not going to spend their entire life as a professional athlete, they recognize that the average salary upon graduation from Harvard and the brand name will take them very far in life. Sure. I would not be the least surprised if Harvard, or for that matter, all of the Ivy League schools, decide that they are not going to give any additional educational benefits to try to recruit college athletes. 
And they wouldn't have to do so, even if the players prevail. Now, there are other schools that are very, very concerned about who their college athletes are. Uh, I'll come back for a moment here to the University of Alabama. A very different example. The University of Alabama's entire identity, or most of its identity, is tied up in having this very good football team. And it brings in huge revenues for the school, their success in football. Uh, in fact, outside of Alabama, if you talk to most people and you say University of Alabama, the first thing they think is football. Yeah, right. Now, the University of Alabama almost certainly is going to give every last educational benefit that it's allowed to under the rules as they will become to their athletes. Not because every person that comes to that school is going to really want the educational benefit, but they will do anything that they're not restrained from doing to try to recruit the top athletes to their school. But if it's by getting another top athlete away from somewhere else, you know, it just increases their bottom line. Now, there are all these other schools out there that say, no, we won't do this. So, no, we wouldn't want to do this. Uh, you see arguments coming. We've heard it from a lot of the Big Ten presidents saying we don't want to get into anything that looks to pay for play. But here's the reality. The first time after this rule is overturned, presuming it's overturned, and we're not talking about anything huge. We're talking about educational benefits. The first time that the University of Michigan finds out that the top-ranked football recruit in the state of the University of Michigan is considering the University of Alabama, which is giving these benefits, you know it'll be a matter of seconds before the <laughs> University of Michigan offers That's them. That's right. <laughs> That's how free markets are supposed to work. I mean, if you believe in free markets and you believe in capitalism and you don't believe in restraints of trade, that's how things are supposed to work. And at least in this very limited circumstance that relates to competing for college athletes based on educational benefits in this tiny little area, we'll move closer to a free market, presuming the Supreme Court comes down and rules in favor of the players in Austin. Mark, let me just interject for a second, just so I can understand something and so that even for our listeners, they're clear. Is this an all or nothing argument at this point? And uh, forgive my ignorance. Is As things stand, are no benefits beyond the cost of the education allowed to be given, none whatsoever? And if this ruling goes the way you think it will go, the level of benefits, is there some limit to what those 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 benefits uh, could be, or is that, again, unlimited? Um, that's a great question. You know, to begin with the really pedantic answer, but it's technically accurate, is currently the NCAA, forget the law for a moment, currently the NCAA is a private trade association, defines what it considers payments in kind, defines what it considers compensation, and says you're not allowed to have this. And then they have a whole series of carve-outs that either because some member schools push really hard for or because they've been embarrassed have been changed. Uh, so, for example, it used to be one definition of cost of attendance. And then a few years back, we had the Ed O'Bannon versus NCAA case. This was the antitrust case that preceded Alston uh, that the Supreme Court did not hear, but went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and that court decision said that school that the NCAA cannot enjoin schools from giving an amount, and it was set somewhere just over $5,000, uh, and they said it could be held in trust for the athletes upon graduation to cover additional costs. Um, so that was the first movement. 
Um, there are no restraints in terms of how much food uh, colleges could give to their could give to their athletes. There used to be. There used to be. There used to be several pages in the NCAA handbook that were quite disgraceful. Uh, things Amazing. to the extent that you could have you get you have bagel spreads for the athletes, but you can't have cream cheese. Uh, and if several years ago in the NCAA Final Four, Shabazz Napier, uh, who at the time was a very good player for UConn, was interviewed after the game. And he was asked a question about how he felt to have accomplished this much. And on national TV, where all of America heard the NCAA superstar who just brought in so much money for the NCAA playing in the NCAA tournament, said a lot of times he and his teammates go to bed hungry. And within a few weeks of that embarrassment, that restraint changed. Uh, there are certain limited sums of money uh, that tennis players are allowed to keep from certain tournaments. Uh, there are certain situations that if you're a multi-sport star, you're allowed to keep the money from a different sport. Uh, so if you remember about a decade ago, there was a quarterback by the name of Drew Henson uh, who signed with the Yankees for several million dollars. Uh, and then play college football for the University of Michigan. He didn't have to return that money. Uh, so there are all types of exceptions that the NCAA, um, that the NCAA puts into its own rules. Um, so I wouldn't say it's nothing, but it's these weird exceptions that the association has chosen. And now this is a push, uh, much like we saw in O'Bannon to get a court ruling that will require the NCAA to other and you could look at it as either add another exception or to lift one of its myriad restraints. I understand. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying that. You're welcome. In summary, you're you're not very optimistic about the NCA's argument at, at this point in time. If there is anything that they could do, what could be their saving grace at this point for, for the Alston case? I don't think there's any way that the NCAA could win the Alston case. Uh, I think that uh, they mishandled themselves in many ways. Uh, I think they mishandled themselves uh, by even bringing the case to the Supreme Court. Uh, I think they would have been better off just allowing college athletes to reach agreements with schools that choose for educational benefits. Uh, I think it would have been a better PR move. It also would have been a better legal move. Um, so I think that was a mistake that they made. Um, I think this could get even worse, theoretically, uh, in the sense that it is within the realm of possibility that one, if not more, of the justices, and possibly several of them, could issue a ruling that either directly or implicitly uh, calls into doubt all of the NCAA's no-pay restraints. Uh, one option for them, and there really isn't much they could do at this point. I mean, the case is already before the Supreme Court. Um Given that I am a very strong believer that the NCAA should and will lose this case and will lose it um, perhaps in a flame of glory, uh, one thing they could do, and they probably should have done this before, is just lift this restraint right now and try to take the PR benefit of saying we've made this decision. I think there's an opportunity, irrespective of how this comes out, for the NCAA to say we're lifting all restraints on educational benefits and also at the same time to lift the restraints on nil because they're going to lose there too. And if I were representing the NCAA, I'd say let's get rid of these two and let's keep direct payments of cash for college athletes on our books, our prevention of that, and let's see if we can hold on to that piece. 
Um, but even if it's death by a hundred cuts or whatever you want to call it, a thousand cuts that we see here in terms of the antitrust litigation, uh, I think it's possible, if not probable, that not only will the NCAA lose this case, but there will be language in the decision that will facilitate future antitrust challenges involving other areas against the monopolist college sports trade association. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. It sounds like the NCAA are not, you know, they don't seem to have a mindset going back 40, 50 years to to concede anything, right? As you say, they, they'd rather take a thousand and more cuts uh, before they before they give in to, you know, an argument of this nature. And I think there are two reasons why. Uh, one is, I think the NCAA in a way probably views uh, appealing to the Supreme Court as being a free shot, because no matter how this comes out, um, if the NCAA doesn't get everything they want, we know their next step is to run to Congress, as they've already started to do, uh, and to try to get for themselves some form of an antitrust exemption. Uh, so if we saw, and there are several bills currently before the Supreme, before Congress looking at various issues involving college sports, uh, the one that's kind of gone through the wayside, and I'm so glad it's the case, uh, was a bill proposed by Marco Rubio, uh, which looks like it was cut and paste right from the NCAA lobbyists that was intended to give the NCAA full antitrust exemption. So if the NCAA loses, they're not done. They're running to Congress to try to get what they want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the second piece to why they're doing this uh, is I really do believe there's a problem with groupthink at the NCAA level. Uh, I had served as a faculty athletic representative my college uh, from 2016 until 2019, uh, which meant that I had attended... Uh, the NCAA Faculty Athletic Representative Conference, which was made up entirely of professors. And I listened to a lot of the professors who were there who were very involved with the NCAA in some way, and I'll speak. And they seemed to think that the NCAA was going to win its antitrust case, and they seemed to think nil was just going to go away. And then I listened to the NCAA's key speaker, and I realized that the information that was being fed out was propaganda and not a reasonable depiction of the law. So if you have enough people that are discussing the same conversation with their own tilt in it, it only re-embeds the group thing. And I'm not saying everybody at the NCAA, but I think a reasonable number of people associated with the NCAA, uh, at least until now, but maybe it'll change with the Supreme Court decision, don't seem to be fully cognizant of how antitrust law works or what the liability under antitrust law of the NCAA member schools may be, and continue to buy into this really dubious fiction that that the NCAA athlete no-pay rules somehow have a legal exemption from antitrust law when it's questionable if it's even meaningful dicta that they're relying on, but definitely not a holding of Board of Regents. Yeah, I, I think that that second point, Mark, um, is very, very true. I can, you know, tell you from my, you know, personal experience is just sort of the attitudes kind of around some of the administrators at these athletic departments. That that is exactly the perspective. Um there's a very good documentary called Schooled. I don't know if it's on Prime or on Netflix, on it's it's been out for probably about a decade or so. Um 
but it actually goes into one of these conferences and they uh, feature in the documentary Sonny Vaccaro, who is you know the the famed sort of Adidas Nike executive that has been accused of all kinds of different things. But but part of this conversation goes to one of the associate ads or one of the ads, and and the comment that he gives about why he thinks this is such a bad idea is it, just like straight out of some other world, uh, just in terms of the you know words he used to describe the athletes and their ability to think. Um, and, and it, and it just sort of, you know, paints a picture, I think of, of, uh, that, you know, group thing that I think you're, you're also witnessing in, in, a in a different level. And, and look, um, Mark Emeritt, whose anniversary is coming up, apparently just canceled his, uh, you know, annual anniversary trip because he's very serious about this case. So, <laughs> you know, good for him <laughs> in any way. Can I, can I talk about Mark Emmert for a moment? Please. Yes. Yeah. I'd love to. Uh, and I'm going to say two things that might sound completely contradictory. First, Mark Emmert is to blame. Uh, Mark Emmert is, is supposed to be a leader of this set of this 1200 member college trade association. And he can't seem to lead this association in the right moral direction. And he seems to fumble upon fumble over and over and over again and make bad words. And I think there are definitely points for blame with Mark Emmert. But I also think that Mark Emmert in many ways has become a figurehead for something that's not really driven by him. Uh, NCAA policy is a bottom-up trade association is the policy that devoted upon by each of the individual member colleges. Right, right. And the primary person who's responsible for voting at the end of the day, and granted they could delegate the right to somebody else, is the college president. And at so many of these schools, you know, the college presidents and board of trustees, we, we're moving into an era, we think about the ivory tower, we think about higher education in many ways having left-leaning values, we hear about higher education, adopting woke ideology, talking about business ethics, talking about the wrong that's going on in government, the wrong that's going on in business. And when they come, and they might say all of the right things in public, but when these member colleges from our ivory tower sit down and vote on policy, and they're able to do so anonymously, where they don't have to account for their own decision, but they get to hide behind Mark Emmert, and they get to hide behind the blue and white circular NCAA logo, they are not voting for things that correlate with the values that they purport to support everywhere else. And yes, Mark Emmert is in a way a problem, but if you replace Mark Emmert with somebody else, it won't change the situation. That's right. There's a reason why Mark Emmert leading the NCAA looks like Miles Brand looking the NCAA that looks like Cedric Dempsey running the NCAA. Because at the end of the day, whoever is in that role is very well paid to be a spokesperson and hopefully a leader of the collective view of the member colleges. Until the member colleges step up and say we have to be cognizant of our own values and we have to look at how we treat our athlete labor and we have to look at the ethnic component of these restraints of trade and we have to look at principles of fundamental fairness until they do that it doesn't matter who you have running the ncaa 
it's going to be the same old business. I think you're right. I think the role of the president of the NCAA is really to you know execute the bylaws of the organization, which were set forth by the member organizations, essentially, right? And I think that's kind of where that is, right? It was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Those bylaws. So to um, you know summarize this whole thing, Mark, um, you know there's been a number of uh, you know bills uh, going through Congress and through you know Senate that you know different people have brought to uh, everyone's attention. Um, there's been some discussion about the, you know the Athletes' Bill of Rights. Um, catch us up on kind of where where all that is at this point. Well, it seems to be across all ends of the spectrum and all lobbying groups a belief that perhaps going to Congress and trying to get federally what they want might be more desirable than going state by state. Uh, So what we have now are a whole series of bills that are before Congress that are intended to reshape in some ways college sports. And as much as they're initially being called bills about name, image, and likeness, uh, every single one of them goes beyond name, image, and likeness. And to the best of my knowledge, and there probably are more, uh, there were at least four different bills that had been percolating. Uh, two of them, which overall are very friendly to the NCAA, uh, one being the Marco Rubio bill, which I don't think is going anywhere. Uh, as I said before, it reads like it comes directly out of the NCAA lobbyist mouth. Uh, the other one on that side is the Roger Wicker bill, uh, coming from Wicker in Mississippi, uh, which wants to create some limited nil rights for college athletes, uh, but also some form of limited antitrust exemption and some declaration that college athletes are not employees, yep. uh, and thus cannot attempt to unionize. Uh, on the other side of things, uh, we have a bill that was proposed by Cory Booker. Uh, and for those who do not know, I mean, most people know Cory Booker uh, as being New Jersey senator and candidate for president on the Democratic ticket uh, in the primaries. Um, Cory Booker was prior to that, I believe, a tight end at Stanford University yep. earlier in life. That's right. Yep. So you have the Cory Booker bill, uh, but you also have the um, the bill coming from um, Chris Murphy in Connecticut, which is the second bill. Uh, And both of them are written more in the sense of trying to tackle the issue of greater injustices to college athletes. So they're broader in terms of nil. Uh, My understanding is that the Booker bill, if I'm not mistaken, seeks to overturn uh, limits on college athlete transfers and the NCAA's ways to try to make players sit out if they switch schools to increase freedom of movement. Uh, My understanding with the Murphy bill uh, is that it's supposed to affirmatively deem athletes to be employees, at least in some ways, to facilitate unionization. Um, But really what we have right now are a lot of different groups trying to propose different things. And the very real question of the Congress of our country, which can't even come together at this point to sanction the storming of the Capitol, as a nation. Yeah. And we expect them to be able to pass some form of bill to ubiquitously regulate college sports. I mean, the easiest bill would be something simply to say 
that no college that takes federal funding is allowed to prevent college athletes from licensing the name, image, and likeness to third parties and stay silent on everything else and allow the other issues to be let, handled through litigation at the state level. Um, but the more and more one side comes, the more and more you have a Marco Rubio-type bill, which is incredibly detrimental to all college athlete interests, yeah. which is just an NCAA lobbying piece, uh, the more I think you're incentivizing um, other senators like Booker and Murphy to be like, oh, and we're not only going to address nil, we're going to look for more far broader protections to college athletes. Um, so I don't, in a common world, one might think you just compromise, you deal with the nil piece, you simply say that any school that takes federal funds cannot restrain athletes from endorsing products for any which way, leave it right there and stay silent on everything else. But as one side tries to bring in punitive measures, the other side's coming in and trying to provide greater protections for the college athletes. Yeah. So, so it sounds like uh, basically at this point it's down to the states and they're kind of driving you know, the discussion on this and driving the laws around it, right? So July 1st, we've got Florida coming into play. And then shortly thereafter, I believe uh, next year, if I'm not mistaken, Colorado and uh, California are, are, in, are in line. Yes. And California, but California recently pushed theirs up. Yep. If we could just talk economics for a moment here. Uh, and I know you, you both have told me before we started the show that a lot of people here are interested in sport, but they're interested in the business of sport and they're interested in business in general. Uh, if we just think about free market economics and cartels falling, uh, and sure. you can pick any cartel out there that's falling, uh, whether it want, we're talking about like OPEC as a cartel, uh, whether we want about the NCAA as a cartel, cartel theory says that as soon as one member breaks away from the cartel, the rest of them are going to as well. And you have a prisoner's dilemma situation. All of the states, schools, all of the colleges are very happy with a system in which they do not allow their athletes to endorse products. And you can't do it either. Now, the minute that Nancy Skinner had the guts to stand up and get the bill passed in California that prevents California member colleges from preventing athletes from endorsing third-party product, products for money. At that moment, she had forced the California member schools of the NCAA out of the cartel. And the moment that it became clear to public schools, private schools, sports fans throughout the country, that perhaps California might be a more desirable place for athletes to go for their schooling because California member colleges cannot participate in these very particular nil rules of the NCAA cartel. It was only a matter of time before many other state state legislatures said we can't lose our athletes to California. It's time for us to pass a bill. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So as soon as one breaks out of the cartel, you know, places that said they would never do it, places that said they'd never do it, recognize the possibility that certain elite athletes are going to choose to go to the places where they have more economic rights and they can't get bills passed fast enough. 
Well, it's uh, building up to be an interesting fight, that's for sure. Uh, Mark, appreciate your time uh, you took to chat with us and kind of give us this awesome interview about uh, everything that's happening, uh, you know, around the NCAA. Um, we wish you well. Stay safe. Thank you, Mark. It was, it was very insightful, really insightful today. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. It was a lot of fun as well. Oh, no, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. We know that if you're listening to this show, we know that you know how to subscribe to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends and your family about us. And if you'd like to get in touch, please connect with us. Our contact information is in the show notes. Thank you for listening. We'll be in the game with you in a few days with our new episode. Thank you.